Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Joel Alvarado. Mr. Alvarado is a Brooklyn, New York born and raised Puerto Rican who earned his undergraduate degree in history at Morehouse College and a master's degree in public policy at Clark Atlanta University. And he's currently pursuing a doctorate in higher education administration at the University of Alabama. His research interests include first-generation students of color, community colleges, institutional culture and climate, and social capital. Meanwhile, Joel has over 20 years of professional experience in the public nonprofit and higher education sectors, specializing in public policy, strategic planning, project and executive management, communications, lobbying, external relations, community engagement, and higher education leadership. These include stints with Georgia Piedmont Technical College, the Southern Center for Studies in Public Policy at Clark Atlanta University, the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and the NAACP. Currently, he is the Executive Vice President for External Affairs with Ohio River South, one of the leading governmental relations firms in the Southeast. And last but not least, Joel is the co-host of Los Politicos, a podcast that offers a Latin perspective on Southern politics, policy, and government. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me today, Joel. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. You know, it's funny when people read my bios these days, it just makes me realize how old I am. Because <laughs> if you start reading all that stuff, I figured you know, it took a lot of time to, to amass that type of um, career. But um, it's not just, old, just uh, accomplished. I'm, just accomplished. They, okay, I, 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 facts. There we go. I'm going I'm to I'm own that. Yes, not old, just accomplished. Thank you yeah. so much for correcting me on that one. <laughs> Of course. So let's jump right in. So you are, as I said at the top of the show, you're a Brooklyn born and raised Puerto Rican. And now I you're am. pursuing a doctorate in education. And in between, you forced this amazing career as a community leader. So let's start from the beginning. How did your early life shape your professional interests in Afro-Latinx communities and issues? Absolutely. Um, can I give a shout out first to uh, Gina Garcia, one of your... Um, yep. You know, love her, love her work, um, buy her books all the time. I think she's, amazing. You know, she's a yes. <laughs> amazing powerhouse mind you have in Pitt. Um, she's really doing excellent research regarding HSI. So I just want to shout her out and all the Pitt community that is doing phenomenal work in their various spaces and places in order to ensure that, you know, we're able to understand what's really going on in the world. So just thank University of Pittsburgh and all the great scholars you have there. Oh, well, thank you. We appreciate that. Yeah, we do love ourselves. I love myself some Gina Garcia and really all, as you said, all the Pitt community who are doing the work um, every day to get this message out, to get this research done, to get to embrace the communities, to highlight and affirm and amplify these voices. Absolutely. Any any community, any city that can birth an August Wilson got to be doing something right. Which so. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I hear you. I think we. I think we all are. I think that's a t-shirt worthy. T-shirt worthy. We all trying, but um, <laughs> but to get back to the question that you asked me, I think um, I've had an interesting journey. You know, if we talk about education. Education definitely has been 
catalytic for me and, and transformative for me, right? I wouldn't be who I am today having this conversation with you without access to education. But ironically, you know, growing up, you know, I grew up in Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York, and, you know, shout out to Bushwick and, and Brooklyn, of course. Uh, but it was a working class family, right? It was a very diverse community. You know, we had people from the Caribbean, from Latin America, from Central America, from Mexico, African-Americans, um, African, what have you, um, you know, really rich culturally. But a lot of working class people, not, not a lot of people going to college and getting education, education or so post-baccalaureate degrees, that not, you know, these are people who got up in the morning, went to work, you know, bought a home, bought a car, had enough money to go on vacation and hopefully retired, you know, comfortably, right? That was... That was their lives, including my parents, who both came from Puerto Rico. My mom came from Puerto Rico when she was six. My father came when he was 16. And, you know, they married relatively young in their early 20s. And it's myself and my brother who came 11 years later. And so, so it wasn't like I had role models in front of me in a community regarding um, going to college, getting education, and, and having careers of that such of that note, and, and especially not in the field I am today, right? Um, and so was, when I got to high school, I went to Murray Bertram High School of Business Careers, which is uh, located in downtown Manhattan. Um, and it was at a time, it was one of the top schools in, in, uh, in New York City. I took a test to, to go in. It's uh, another school similar to it. It's called Norman Thomas, which is more midtown. So in any event, there I met a man named um, Mr. Philip Mott. He was my English teacher. He was related to the uh, King family. I think he was like second cousins. To, uh, to the King children. And so in any event, he started opening my eyes to a, a pop to, to, to language, to art, to, um, to poetry, to literature. And you know, because of him, I was able to recite part of Dr. King's, um, one of his speeches before Coretta Scott King, uh, 1985, which as you know, is a seminal year in American history because that's when I believe that's when the uh, the King holiday was enacted, right? And so to be able to meet um, Coretta Scott King and recite one of Dr. King's speeches in front of her was an incredible um, moment for me as a 15-year-old in New York City. So then um, moving forward, I had no aspirations of going to co college. You know, I just was thinking about the now, right, in high school. And, I, and so much so that I had a perfect 75 average because I realized that was the highest grade I can get, get with the least amount of work. So I just had no motivation beyond high school. So eventually um, I was talking to a bunch of friends and Mr. Mott was there and everybody was, was sharing where they're going to be going to college. And when they got to me, I said, I'm not going to college. And so suffice it to say, they all took me to task. I mean, you would think I spoke about their mamas or something. So I mean, it was just, they were just on me. They just couldn't believe how how crazy it was that I'm not even contemplating going to college. I'm so saying, you're smart, you got to go to school. And, you know, Mr. Mott was there as well, getting on my case. So I entered um, community college. I went to the Borough of Manhattan Community College and I failed um, two of the three exams. I failed the math exam and the writing exam, which is super ironic because I'm known for my writing these days, right? And, but it was at the community college that I realized I had something to say and I started really, um, my voice started forming, right? And I started believing that the words in my head were worthy of going on paper. And so um, I went there, then I went to Queens College, which is a predominantly white institution located in Queens, New York. That was the first time in my life I truly felt minoritized and I really felt, um, I felt small in the sea of white. I found myself always at the Black Student Union because 
I just felt so uncomfortable being amongst all these white people because that was not my that was not my life. My life had been around black and brown people all the time. So I just felt super uncomfortable. And fortunately, I went to Lincoln Center to a college fair. And oh, by the way, at the same time, I was working as a janitor at the World Trade Center, picking up trash, cleaning toilets, doing, you know, everything that janitors do. And at this time, I was, um, I went to a college fair at Lincoln Center in, in New York City, ran into a man named Sterling Hudson, uh, dean of the mission of the Mars College. And something just compelled me to go there and tell him my story. Just, I always say that, I don't know what I said, but I feel it was divine intervention. Just words came into me and, and then came out of me to him and to his ears. And I just shared my heart that this felt like I just felt I had a chance that I believe I could do more than I'm doing now. And so should give me a chance. I can show them that I can, I can do something with my life. That is more, that's meant to do more than what I'm doing at that moment in time. And he looked at me and said, Joe, let me tell you something. There's something inside of you that you don't even realize that I see. And I believe Morehouse is the only college that can pull it out. And he accepted me right there on the spot and show. No questions asked. Wow. He just, he just, he, he took a chance on me, right? Uh, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I went, and let me tell you how great Mr. Mata is, because I graduated in 1988 from um, Bertram High School. And I saw him like maybe 89, 90. He walked by the, the um, a walkway where I was cleaning it as a janitor. And he saw me and he, and he acted like he didn't see me because he told me later he couldn't handle seeing me like that. Like he expected so much more of me. And he just was so hurt that I was in a janitor's uniform doing that work. And it just, it, it, it just couldn't handle seeing me like that. So I went back to him. I said, I looked him up and for all the folks out there, before we had smartphones, we had to find other ways, like picking up a landline phone, or looking in the yellow pages, or you know, mm-hmm. making a phone call, right? Yep. Um, so I had to look him up. I found him, and and I asked him to if he'd be willing to give me a recommendation to Morehouse. And not only did he say yes, but he said, and I told him I had to go down to Atlanta for an interview, my final interview. He said he will go down with me for the interview. And then he said, on top of that, he said, I will go down with you, and and let's schedule the journey Ken week. That occurs, um, you know, the, in, during January of, uh, of every year in Atlanta to honor uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And 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 so he took me down. He had me stay at Yolanda King's house, the eldest daughter of Dr. King. Right. Mm-hmm. So she opened up a home to me, allowed me to stay there. And so I was there. I went to King Week. I got to meet the Reverend James Orange with other young leaders to hear about the movement and about you know his thoughts about what we need to be doing at that time as young leaders of color in, uh, in America, um, got to go to different banquets and events. And then he went, he went with me, drove me to Morehouse College, sat in the room with me with Dean Hudson as I did my interview. And he was there when I, um, when he officially accepted me to Morehouse College. And, you know, it's one of the most pivotal moments in my life. And I'm so happy that um, uh, uh, Mr. Mott was there. So if, when people, think that teachers don't matter, they absolutely matter because there can be the difference between you being a statistic or you studying statistics. And so he, he was instrumental in my life. And so he just passed this year. So I just I just honor him in this moment and thank him for being a phenomenal teacher and a phenomenal human being and, and helping me to get on the right path. So from there, Michelle, you know, I became a history major at Morehouse, really delved deep into getting the context about who I am as a human being. History was the best 
Um, first of all, I love history. Um, and as you know, I'm married to a historian, so I can't escape it even if I wanted to. Um, I, I, it helped, being a history major more arts college helped me really get a, an understanding, a base, a foundation of what it means to be black and Latino. What is that story? I did not know that story. That story was, was hidden from me growing up. It wasn't told in the elementary school, the middle school, the high schools, any of the, uh, the community college I went to um, or the, or the four year institution, predominantly white institution I went to, um, uh, was that Morehouse that I was finally able to learn that history. And that really helped me, that helped propel me to the path and to having the courageous conversations I'm having today regarding who I am as a human being and how I intend to present myself in the world and how I intend to be received in the world. Well, that is an amazing story, Joe. I have never heard this. I mean, I, and I have, you know, we, you and I have met but I have never heard this story. And I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm so glad that you had those people in your life to help encourage you and push you and get you, and like literally be in the room with you, mm-hmm. uh, as you as you made your way into Morehouse. And so I'm, I'm so, uh, so proud of you for all of that. Thank you. Um, and, Thank and, you. And, I, and I think especially as you think, as you, when you were talking about um, this, this history not being taught and that you found it in a place like Morehouse at an HBCU, right. Right. that gave you that gave that to you and i'm wondering about and i know we talked a little bit earlier that you're passionate about affirming um afro-latinidad and, and blackness and latinidad as not mutually exclusive but as these not even more than intersecting as this whole piece and i'm wondering if you could say more about why you've been drawn to this um and especially how it informs your current work uh, and your podcast los politicos oh absolutely so <clears throat> That journey started when I was six years old. Uh, I, um, oh, let me, before I even get into that, let me just say this. One of the reasons why um, I am pursuing my doctorate in higher education administration is because I realized there's more Joel Alvarado's out there and they need to see somebody like me in a position of power and authority in, in a post-secondary institution who understands their journey, that understands their challenges and can empathize with their struggle and is in a position to be able to do something about it. Um, I understand, you know, those, you know, who understand about the St. Pofelberg, you know, we got to look forward, but never leave anybody behind. And so, you know, that's, that's part of my ethos as a human being where, you know, I do work because I'm trying to, I'm trying to chart a new, a new course, a new path, but it's not just for me, it's for those who are, who are also walking the same journey. So that way they can have, the benefit of this new path that I'm working to, to forge for them and for us. So that's so my experiences and regarding my educational journey is what's really leading me into to wanting to hopefully be a college president um, of either HBCU, HSI, or just an urban institution that has people, black and brown students that are like me, that are looking for a chance that they might not be the diamonds that they want to be just yet, but with a little polishing and a little love. A little guidance, they can definitely all end up sparkling in the end. So that's, I just wanted to add that point as to why uh, I'm choosing my uh, educational journey. But regarding my identity journey, um, it started when I was six years old. Uh, my we were going to Puerto Rico for to visit uh, family, especially my my father's family, um, and this would be the first time I would actually meet them where I was kind of aware i mean i saw them when i was like a, about a year old but you know what do i know when i was a year 
old um, other than, or two years old, other than they tell me a story that I got a cut over my, my right eyebrow because I was playing and I, and I bumped my head on, on where they keep the pig slop oh. <laughs> and, and, and I bust my head open. So like that, I don't, I can't confirm that, but that's the story that they're going with. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, we'll just, we'll just roll with that then. So uh, my, my grandparents were pig farmers on my father's side. And so um, that is, that is a true statement on uh, that part. And, and so in any event, so she, she, before we left, she, she had a talk with me. She said, look, I just want you to be aware that your grandmother, your father's mother looks different than let's say my grandmother. I'm speaking about my mother's voice now. And that um, she's a lot darker. She's darker than anybody else that you may have seen in our family. I just want you to be aware of that because I don't want you to say something out of turn. So I was kind of taken aback, but I was like, okay, I don't really get what you're trying to tell me, but I'll do what you say. And and so we go to um, Santa Isabel, Puerto Rico. That's where my father's family's from. Uh-huh. And yes, you know, my grandmother is a black woman. Uh-huh. My aunts and uncles are black. My father is is definitely a black man. He's you know lighter skinned, but if you look at him, you say, oh yeah, he's definitely a black man. And then at that time, he was rocking the fro like everybody else in the seventies, right? So, um, so he definitely is you know he's a, he's a definitely a black man. But the people in his in his family, his cousins, you know, have a darker phenotype, right? And, and just, I'm just looking around. I'm like, well, they're saying these people are my family. So what does that mean about me? And then, you know, so I, I, that was like the first point when I realized, hmm, uh, yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. I know that, but there's something more just kind of looking at my family. Now, of course, I didn't have language. I didn't have theory. I didn't have I, you know, I didn't, ha- I wasn't blessed with all that at six yet. I just, just had a feeling, right? I just kind of, I was, I'd be, I was being observational and I just kind of said, okay, um, I'm, I, I kept it in the back of my mind. And so when I went to high school, Shell, I, um, I found myself mostly, totally uh, um, befriending and, and, and just, spending time with the, the black community there. I just felt most comfortable amongst that community. It wasn't like in, when I went to Catholic school from um, K to eight and it was diverse. And, you know, I hung out with um, Latinos and African-Americans, what have you. But for some reason, when I got to high school, they just, that, you know, just, I just started hanging out with African-Americans, maybe just because my interests aligned with their interests. And I just felt most comfortable there. And it's not because I didn't, I didn't feel, totally uncomfortable with Latinos, but there was like one of the issues I made, I had was the fact that I don't speak Spanish and I, you know, I speak it okay, but I'm not fluent. And so I've always felt left out, you know, if they start speaking Spanish or they start speaking about aspects of, of Latin culture, I don't, I'm not really a hip on that. So um, I didn't, so I felt like an outsider a lot of times in regards to you know, about music and food and expressions and language and so on and so forth. So I, I was always outside looking in. I was welcome to the table, but I didn't know what was being served nor the conversations that were being had, right? But I didn't feel like that in the Black community. I was, I was received, I was appreciated, I was cared for, and I have great friends that I still have today. And so that helped because that, you know, just being around Black community in my, in my high school and then taking, like I remember taking an African-American literature course where we read, um, uh, miseducation of the Negro, we read Roots, we read uh, Up From Slavery, we read 
um, the, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, and just all these, you know, just started reading these books. And, and I always was thinking about my grandmother and about my family. And I'm like, and then uh, and, you know, I'm meeting my friends and their family, and I'm looking at their family. I'm like, wow, your family looks a lot like my family. Mm-hmm. You know, your grandmother looks like my grandmother, right? Mm-hmm. Your your people look like my people. So am I different from you? I mean, I mean, I mean, but my last name is not a it's not Anglo, it's not an Anglo last name, right? It's right, it's the Iberian last name. So I'm Alvarado, you're Johnston, but our people look the same, right? And so I just started realizing, you know, when I was in high school, it's like I must be a black man as well, right? I'm not African American, but I'm absolutely black, right? And I may not, I may not look phenotypically black, you know, if there is such a thing as a traditional African-American, you know, like to create models, right? Like if you don't look like this, then you're not it. Um, but I understood clearly that I, I have black people in my family and I was embracing that. And I started doing that in high school. And then it was just a journey from there, from there on, like going to, when I was in community college, and then when I was in college and then at Morehouse, it really started honing in. I start, I leaned into my blackness, but I didn't I didn't disavow it nor my being Puerto Rican. But what I was trying to figure out was how to not get caught up in a binary trap. Right, Michelle, you know, like I'm not gonna allow people to make me choose one or the other. Right. It's not it's not an either or it's an and and both. And you know, the being in the South, as you all well know, is super binary, right? It's it's everything is I mean the hit the history of yeah. of the South is based on black and white. It's, it's super binary, right? And so now you have this, me, this brown kid coming into um, into the South, going to Morehouse, going to Clark Atlanta, creating a life here. Like, so what does it mean? Like, of course, I leaned into the black community and, and there was an emerging Latino community that was coming forth. And I had to figure out, what does that mean? What is it? Can I be part of the black community, part of the Latino community? I mean, is that is that is that okay? Um, do I have to choose one or the other? I mean, just a lot of questions going on in my mind. So, because I just had to figure out how to maneuver, like, who am I going to be in this world, right? Who am I? How am I going to define myself? How am I going to present myself in the world? And fortunately, you know, um, as time passes, you know, I, I just realized that as I became more aware of who I am, and I gained language, and I gained theory, and I and I was able to express my identity in a way that authoritative and that was clear and concise and people got it and then i made the conscious decision it's like no i'm not going to allow anybody to to make me choose between one or the other i am a black man without question i took my i took my um my dna test so i know who i am as a human being right but at the same time I'm, i am a latino i'm puerto rican and i can be both and I can support both and I can love both parts of myself. And it doesn't, and I'm not, I'm not living a contradiction, right? I'm, I am, I am, I'm trying to collapse all these different identities that I have into this one being. And, you know, and shout out to Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, just to kind of who created language for us, right? Um, just this idea of intersectionality, you know, of course, you know, it's more complex than that, but just to be able to acknowledge that, you know what, there are so many different identities that I have that are part of me and I shouldn't shun any. They all they all make up who I am as a human being. And so let me embrace them all, you know, and let me let me think about them all because they're either, you know, they could be contributing to oppression or they can be the
the parts of me that are causing my oppression, right? I need to know all of that. And so I just started as I got older, you know, just realizing I can also serve as a bridge builder, Michelle, right? I can I can be a link between the black and browns community. If you look at a lot of my work, like I remember in 2009, I did, um, I co-authored um, some research. We did a, 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 a qualitative study in the Southeast doing some focus groups of black brown relations. You know, it's one it's one of the early works where, and that was through the, through the Southern Regional um, Council. And it was a, a grant funded project. And we were able to go to you know North Carolina and Miami and go to um, different parts of, uh, go to rural Georgia and to more uh, urban Georgia to, to kind of just find out this new dynamic that's emerging between black brown communities and just how is, how are they dealing with the emergence of a new minority in the South. And what does that mean? And how do how are black people deal with that? How do they feel about it? Do they feel threatened? Do they feel like like they're being pitted against Latinos, you know, to be top minority in the Southeast? Uh, just there's just so many new questions that were emerging. Like I'm sure your research is telling you as well. And so um and just moving forward, you know, what's happened recently, why there's been an explosion of sort of my work is because um if you read my, my my bio, you know, a lot of the work I was doing, I was working for somebody else, either working for an organization, working for an elected official. So I couldn't be Joel Alvarado in the public space because I had to be conscious that I was representing another person or an organization. So I couldn't, I couldn't talk, I couldn't talk what I, I couldn't talk about what I wanted to talk about in, in public spaces, right? Because there was be complications with that. But now because of the because where I work at. They've given me the freedom and the reign to be able to say, Joel, you know, we want you to be a thought leader. We want you to, to be out there talking, speaking your truth and talking about things that are important to you that are dear, near and dear in your heart. So I leaned into that and I just started, you know, I, remember I wrote the article in the Atlanta Journal Constitution about being black and Latino in the South. And because I did that, that opened up a whole new world where, you know, people started asking me to speak um at, at different panels and talk about anti-blackness in the latino community or talk about um you know talk about afri-latinidad or talk about you know being a black man that's latino in america i mean just so many different conversations that are being had and, and you know part of it too is i think it's just a growing um population of latinos who are who acknowledge the african identity their black identity and and, and they and they subscribed to being both. So if you look at the data in 2010, um, about a million Latinos self-identified as black. Now it's 2.4 million. And so for all the mathematicians in Pitt, you can figure out what that percentage increase is. I was a history major, so don't ask me to do it, but I'm, but I, I'm pretty confident it's a significant jump, right? And so, um, so a lot of that, you know, when I was talking to, you talked about my podcast, Los Politicos, and I'll get to that in a sec, but when we just last had uh, Mark Hugo Lopez, um, who is who's the director of ethnic and racial research at the Pew Research Center. And I asked him about that. And, you know, he was like, part of it is, you know, you have more, um, you have more uh, couples having children who are different, you know, different races, different cultures. And so that's part of it. And part of it is the census sort of offering um, a better a better means of capturing people's identity. And then a part of it is just, I think there's, I like to think, and I'm hopeful that there's just an awakening that people are embracing who they are as human beings. 
and they and they're willing to express it as you as you well know um latin american history is mired in self-hate right and and just if you are a if you are indigenous or you are of african descent or any combination of it you know our history has always tried to suppress us and, and sort of hide us in the back in the in the closet in the kitchen or what have you and, and popular culture has done that as well and I, and and i see and i'm sure you see as well there there is a there's a turning and there's, there's, there's a there's a an unwillingness to be silenced to be invisible in in our respective uh in our respective countries that, that we all come from or here, even here in the united states we are a lot of young people i have to shout out the young people who are who are really taking the lead on this we're you know people are, are willing to fully embrace who they are and tell the world who they are so it's an exciting time to to really explore this um this issue and to really uh, lean into it and just just to kind of put a put a, a end a period to the sentence um we started los politicos last year during the pandemic because you know i just i had been um one of those the few brown faces in the political space for a long time here in georgia but i've seen an emergence of, of latinos starting to participate and be become active you know in various ways various capacities and but what i didn't see was that there are conversations that are being had about politics and policy and government but what about the latino perspective on all this you know we just don't only care about immigration right, mm -hmm, right. there is there is a, a spectrum of issues and topics that we care about that we want to weigh in on and with the latino population growing exponentially in the south i mean you have um we have about 1.4 million latinos in florida although florida is kind of an outlier and you kind of just kind of put it out there on, on the side somewhere right but you have over a million in north carolina over a million in georgia and in every every southern state you saw either a 20% or higher increase in the Latino population, every single Southern state, right? From Louisiana all the way up to, you know, North Carolina. And so if that's true, then we need a platform where we can articulate how we feel about policies that affect our lives, affect our community lives, our families. And, and so that's what we wanted to do. So with Los Politicos, this is our second season, you know, we try to we find opportunities to highlight and talk to Latinos who are in the public sector, who are um, elected officials, or you know people who have um, who can provide us really, you know, important insight in regard to what's going on in, in this space. And you know, we just try to make sure that that we're having conversations that are timely, that are relevant, uh, and, and with the right people, um, so that way our our community could know that that we're we're listening we're learning and we're growing together in in regarding our our politicization but this is this lost political podcast which you can find anywhere you can find it on spotify you can find it on google you can find it on apple what have you it's part of um it's part of the politicization process where we have to become politically mature as a community in the region and specifically in the state of georgia where i live at so that way, if we want to see change, if we want to see an improvement in our collective quality of life, the way we do that is by fully engaging um, in, in, in politics in all its form. That means registering to vote. That means exercising your right to vote. That means working on campaigns. That means supporting candidates that will support you. That means um, doing the research, following policies that are being introduced at the federal, state, and local level, and make sure you're weighing in. I mean, supporting organizations that are national, that are regional, that are local, that are representing your interests every day, that are, that are the front lines fighting. 
I mean, just being a part of the dynamism that's existing within this political space, within this political reality. So that's what I'm about. Um, I want to, I want to, um, I, I live to see our community being um, strong, relevant, powerful political actors in, in the region. Um, I live for uh, our voice, our story to be, to, to, to rise up beyond the Southeast and become part of the national conversation. I live for, you know, um, the Afro-Latinidad narrative to become a part of the collective Latin American narrative where, and I don't want it to be separated, but I wanted to be acknowledged that we played a major role in the Latin American history that is being taught, right? And, you know, to just continue the, the Europeanization of that, of that history and recognize that black and brown people played were active, were active actors in the, in the histories of those countries that make up Latin America and the Caribbean. And I live for, you know, where if I present myself as a black man who happens to have an Iberian last name of Alvarado, that that's not odd to people, but they understand, you know, I get it, man. You know, black people come from throughout, the diaspora is, is far, it's expanding, right? It's, it's yes. growing, you know, it's Latin America, it's the Caribbean, it's, it's Central America, it's Mexico, it's the Carib you know, it's, it's the continent, it's everywhere, you know? And, and we see you, we see you black man, and we acknowledge you and we appreciate you and, and you know, and welcome. And you definitely have a seat at the table. That's what I'm, that's all that is what I'm trying to do in my, in my professional work, but also my personal journey and stuff that I care about as a human being um, that's living here in Georgia. Um, there's so much, so much I want to say, but I want to ask you uh, in particular uh, regarding all these, what the work you talked about for the public sector, the nonprofit, uh, educate higher ed, what would you say, you talk kind of more broadly, uh, kind of vacillating back and forth between Latino and Afro-Latino communities. And I'm wondering in the work, in, in the work that you were doing on the ground and in these other communities, what, what would you say are some of the most urgent issues for Afro-Latinx communities? And, and again, it doesn't have to be separate from the broader Latino community, but I'm thinking specifically about people of African descent who are also uh, Latino, what were some of the urgent issues mm -hmm. that you saw coming across in your uh, in your research? I think part of it is that we have to we have to have real honest conversation, Michelle, within the Latino community. In that, let's let me look at Puerto Rico, for instance, right? Okay. So, if you look at Puerto Rico, right? If you look at historically the people who've been in positions of power and authority in the island, they all look a certain way. Yes. If you look at if you look at the people who have been most oppressed, who have who have not benefited from their freedom, from their from whatever God, whatever skills God has offered them, all look a certain way, right? Mm -hmm. And and is that just because of the individuals themselves? A lot of people like to to place that on personal responsibility. Like somehow, all these people look a certain way who have been able to be successful because of their own doing. And there's not systems and processes and policies and practices and programs right. that contributed to their success, right? Mm -hmm. And conversely, you look at the people who have been most oppressed and who have not been able to fully benefit from their freedom and from their, from whatever gifts God has given them. Um, and people want to say, well, it's because of them. They, 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 they attribute their failures, so-called failures in life on them as if there's no systems and processes and policies and practices and programs and what have you that have contributed to where they added, like historically, right? Intergenerational, 
right? And and so, you know, but you think about our families, right? In my own family, I can have people who are very European looking and very African looking. And so what am I saying? Am I saying that the people in my family who claim to love me, who, who, who I'm a part of, that they are the beneficiaries of my oppression? That's a hard statement to make, but you know, that's not an easy thing to tell people, right? Like your privilege, right, has afforded you certain benefits at the at my expense. And that's that's really hard. But think about having that conversation on a on a national level, on a countrywide level, right? And saying, I need you to acknowledge that you have systematically denied me the opportunity to be my best self in this country, right? That you have erased me in history, that you appropriate my culture, right? That you only you only celebrate me if I hit a home run or if I make a new bachata song or if I, you know, do something that, you know, operating, something that you benefit from, right? Something that you accrue uh, some sort of benefit from, right? Like if, I, if I'm an athlete or if I'm an actor or if I'm an entertainer, that's when you celebrate me, right? But how come, I, how come I'm having a hard time becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, a scientist, you know, a governor, right? I mean, this is, it's incredible. And, and you know, people want to, uh, you know, in Latin America and Caribbean, they're really funny, right? They want to say it's not a racial issue, it's more of a class issue. Well, excuse me, how did, how, how did we form these classes? And how is it that in, in, in one particular class, Everybody looks a certain way. In another particular class, everybody looks a certain way. So you want to argue class because you think that racism is more of a, a, uh, an, an American social construct that has dictated what has happened historically, culturally, politically, socially, economically um, in, in the United States. No, um, race is a fundamental part of the Latin American story. And it's time that we acknowledge it. We acknowledge the anti-blackness. We acknowledge the colorism. We acknowledge the the tools that have that have allowed for certain people to be successful in life in Latin America and the Caribbean, and certain people to not. And then once we acknowledge it, let's get to a point of healing. And then we get to a point of healing. Let's get a point to some sort of intervention strategy. How do we remedy this? How do we stop the intergenerational poverty that's going on with people who look like me, who are black and brown, living? in the Caribbean or living in Latin America, right? How do we stop this, this blanqueamento that's continually, right? There was the actual practice of blanqueamento, but now it's it's ingrained in our minds, right? This idea of whitening up our, our, our families, whitening up our communities, whitening up our countries, right? That, that, and what does that mean? That means that there's self-hate that is being perpetuated in our society where being Black, looking Black, acting Black, Embracing blackness is is not normative. It's something that is we, every day is it, you know is trying to be reinforced to not happen. We got to acknowledge that because if we don't and don't stop perpetuating that, then how are we going to move forward? I mean, Michelle, just look at the telenovelas and other shows, I know, right? I know. You know, know, you know, or look at the movies that come out, right? Look at look what are they trying to look at the commercials? Mm-hmm. What's the story they're trying to convey? They want Latin, they want people to think that Latin America is a European. Um, a European um, hemisphere, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where the, the islands and the um, and the uh, and the and the countries in in South America, Central America, and Mexico are, you know, are just European countries, right? 
And we know that's not the case. Maybe it might be European folks who are in power, but we know it is black and brown people whose backs those countries are built upon. Let's acknowledge them. Let's not make them footnotes in history, but let's let's embrace who they are and the contributions they made. That's if if, if you really want to get to the point of healing and the point of of real inclusion and, and really celebrating diversity in Latin America, that's where it needs to start. People need to stop benefiting from the oppression of others simply on the basis of race. I love that. I love that you frame this as a national, really hemispheric conversation mm-hmm. that is long overdue. Um, right. And and in thinking about, because we we're we're kind of coming at the end of our time, but I wanted to 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 uh, get into. Uh, any other specific resource? I mean, obviously we have uh, the work that you do, your interviews, your podcasts, your publications, but what other specific kinds of resources would you recommend to people who have said, yes, all right, Joe, I hear you, I'm ready to go. I want more information. How do I find out about, how do I do this? What do I go to? Can you recommend some specific resources people can can access to find out more about what's happening in their specific communities in Atlanta and the Southeast? Uh, we'd love to- Well, I would say, yeah, absolutely. I would say that first, the Pew Research Center, I remember Mark just hit me up a couple of days ago. They just did a survey about being, um, about they, they surveyed darker skinned Latinos and what it meant to be darker skinned in America, right? Um, just, I don't have the exact uh, link, but I know it's there. Look it up. Yeah, we'll get that's, it. We'll, that's, we'll get it on our research right. pages. Yeah. Yeah, get that for sure. This also this sister, and her name is Keeps me. I don't have it in front of me, but she just wrote a book called, she, she wrote it in 2019, but it I saw it and I and I got it and I put it on my uh, my social media. Like I'm reading this book and I'm encouraging other people to read it too. And I'm working to try to get her to um, do a talk in it in Atlanta in March. But um it's called The Browning of the South. And I yes, think that Jennifer um, Jones. Jennifer there Jones. you go. Yeah, Jennifer Jones. Right. Right. Shout out to Jennifer Jones. Right. So I've been communicating with her um, because I think that's an important book, you know, because it talks about the emergence of black brown relations in the South and how how Latinos, you know, uh, traditional immigrants would try to, to in order to really uh, lean into into the power and privilege of whiteness would shun black people and try to separate themselves as much as they can. But seeing that Latinos in the South, at least, uh, that's not the that's not the phenomenon that's occurring that they're building coalitions with, with African-Americans and realize it's a common struggle, right? And then also, you know, the browning of the South, right? I mean, you know, you got people like uh, Samuel Huntington, I think it's Huntington, right? And um, you have other um, authors that, you know, talk about like this idea of a, of a, uh, a siege or, you know, you have you know, this idea of um, this brown wave, but in such negative context, right? Think about right. how uh, the former president was framing this. Um, he was talking about the, the all the Latinos that were coming to the border. And, you know, I heard him say outlandish things like they were going to come and take your homes and they were going to, you know, just all these these crazy things that he was purporting that that people were doing. And all they were and all they were really trying to do was escape the terror that was inflicting their lives every day from their home country. If they had a choice, most people, as you all know, would not leave where they're from. Exactly. But if if it's but living there is untenable and it's and it's and it's unsafe and it's unhealthy, then they're willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to travel thousands of miles in hope in hope that they can find some sort of refuge, some sort of safety, and, and, and enjoy the lives that they deserve as human beings, right? And so, you know, it's just. That's part of the that's part of the, the challenges that, that we're dealing with. But I would say that book is important. 
Um, you know, the research that Pew is doing is important. And I, I would even say better still, I think that there is a lack of resources. I mean, to take another one. So I think we need to hold our national organizations accountable, especially ones that do research. I think that they're, they're missing a phenomenal opportunity to do some real research and understanding of what's happening in the South and regarding Latinos. And we need to be, see less reaction and more proactivity, meaning come on down here to the South and see firsthand what's happening, the communities that are being built, the, uh, the, the infrastructure that's being built, the institutions that are being built, and the, the progress that's being made by Latinos who are living in the Southeast region. Um, they need to come down here and check that out because um, I think Mark has said, um, Hugo Lopez, that half the growth in the 10-year period of the census occurred in the South for Latinos. Now, that includes, of course, Texas, right? So we get that. I get that. Um, and then you have Florida as well. But still, that's still a point that needs to be emphasized, that half the growth occurred in one region. That was in the southeast of Latinos in the United States. So obviously, something is happening here. And, and the trend is, is only continuing in the same direction upward. So I encourage all your listeners and the paid community, you know, let's, let's start working out um, ways where we can collaborate, you know, Pitt, come on down and work with an HBCU and figure out how do we how do we better understand what's happening, how do we better research it, how do we better share what's happening to, to the world. Um, so that way people can understand that there is real change happening in the South. And a lot of that change is, is because of the emergence of the Latino community. Well, I think this, that's a fantastic way to end this segment with this call to action for the community members, for organizations, for researchers to collaborate, investigate, uh, amplify these voices. So again, thank you so much for joining me today, Joel. Of course, thank you. It's my pleasure and honor. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>